Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today is June 21st, uh, 2017, and uh, I have a special guest today, a Professor Bruno LaRue from Laval University, who just gave a keynote address uh, titled Economic Integration Reconsidered, and that's going to be the subject of this podcast. Bruno, thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Bruno, we're going to talk about kind of a lot of aspects of your title. We're going to use that as a basis for asking questions. So I'll just begin with what do you mean by economic integration? Well, economic integration is uh, basically the sharing of uh, competence. Uh, if we look, for example, at the Canadian provinces, they're integrated into an entity called Canada. So there are uh, certain domains that are uh, strictly under provincial jurisdiction, like education, for example. Uh, we have domains that are under uh, joint jurisdiction, federal and provincial, like agriculture, and they're some domains like uh, trade policy that are strictly under federal jurisdiction. So with countries, it's a bit the same sort of thing. We uh, uh, Countries integrate uh, to be a little bit like bigger, a bigger country or a lot to be like a, a bigger country. Uh, a good example is, is the European Union. So uh, a lot, minimally countries in the European Union have uh, uh, zero tariff, between goods traded amongst themselves. Uh, they have common external tariffs, so the, uh, for example, the goods that are imported from China, whether they're imported from Germany or uh, from uh, uh, France, uh, they're taxed the same way. Uh, they have a common market, so pretty much like Canadian provinces where workers can, for example, if the economy is down in the West, workers can move to the East. They have the same sort of thing between them. Uh, same thing with, with capital, uh, free movement of, uh, of capital, and uh, some of these countries even share a common currency, so very much like the Canadian provinces uh, in the end. So there's, there's a whole menu of, uh, of integration. So in the case of Canada, for example, with, with the United States and, and Mexico, we have what we call a free trade zone, so we're exempting each other's from uh, import taxes. And we also coordinate some, some aspects of our, our policies. We have, uh, we try to coordinate, for example, uh, meat inspection, so that trade in meat is more, uh, is more fluid. But we don't go as far as having uh, common ex external tariff or, or free movement of people. So it, the economic integration, the, what all those things have in common is that it seems to me is that they're trying to expand trade uh, and the movement of people across increasing distances um, and not kind of be constrained by borders in the, t in the typical way. We That's right. The, 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 the idea is to uh, facilitate exchanges to uh, increase welfare of the, uh, of the members. And, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, the extra all-in model, you have perfect substitution between moving goods or moving factors and so in a world like this you can have one or the other it end up being the same uh, uh, of course in the real world they are uh, uh, there are elements that uh, are such that you know it's the moving goods versus moving uh, people is not exactly a perfect substitute but uh, uh, it's certainly uh, the, the the idea is uh, to to reduce the, the the thickness of the borders between countries so that you know people can have a better life. That's the idea. One of the ways this kind of always gets described uh, in some ways is free trade, and uh, I always marvel. I always I'm a little concerned about the use of that because it seems to me, uh, as as we're going to talk about in the past and in the present, that the Institutions are the rules that enable that um, that expansion of trade and movement across distances uh, is is very costly and challenging, and there's a lot of rules the, that ex enable that expansion. That's right. There's uh, um, actually even countries that 
essentially have free trade, like for example, Canada and the United States. What we find, empirical studies have found, is that they, uh, uh, there's still a border effect that is quite substantial. And it's not only between Canada and the United States. We find that also between European countries. It's a lot easier to move goods inside a country, like between Canadian provinces, for example. Quebec and Ontario do a, a tremendous amount of trade. And that trade is actually a whole lot more fluid than trade, say, between... Uh, Quebec and New York State, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but but the idea is to 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 try to make it uh, smoother. So you you reduce or eliminate tariffs on most goods. There's still some exception. Like we have a quote unquote free trade agreement with with Mexico and the and the United States, but there there are some goods that still remain taxed. So there's a it's never completely free trade. It's uh, uh, free trade on most things, but with 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 a few exceptions, but we uh, we also try to uh, coordinate regulation to to reduce what we call non-tariff barriers because because these are, could be quite substantial, especially in in agriculture, of course. Right. So in these in the, in what I always marvel at is that this coordination process is pretty costly. That's right. And I want uh, maybe that's a way to kind of move into your, the title of your presentation: is Economic Integration Reconsidered. That yeah, that's right, and and uh, a good example of this is 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 what's going on, for example, uh, in in Britain. You know, uh, Britain, uh, the, the British citizen have voted to uh, leave the European Union, and uh, uh, now they are in a uh, involved in a process <laughs> about leaving. It's, it's it's extremely complicated because you have to take care of of so many things. So you have to prioritize and. So what was decided, for example, in this case is, well, let's settle the issue about uh, British citizen working in the EU and EU citizen working in, in Britain. So what will be their status, their rights, and, and, and so forth. And, and, and that's quite complicated. And, and then eventually, the, uh, the British citizen really, really want that. They want a free trade agreement. They don't want a common market. They don't want too much labor movement. Uh, but they want uh, free trade. But then, uh, with 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 free trade comes okay. What what are we going to do with standards? Mm -hmm. Are we going to just blindly uh, take the EU standards, or are we going to have different standards? What if we have new standards and then they're uh, so different from the EU standards that we have problem exporting? And 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 then if we just uh, just take the EU standards, well then we won't have a say in how these standards are set. So why did we get out of the EU? I mean, these are the sort of, uh, of uh, questions. So it's, it's, it's very complex. Uh, if you do, for example, a, a, a trade agreement, like Canada and, and, and the United States did, um, then because you have different tariffs on goods coming from third countries, uh, a strategy that some uh, third country exporter might have is to try to sneak in, say, if the U.S. has lower tariff than us, to s sneak through the U.S. to export actually to, to Canada. And so to prevent that, we have what we call rules of origin. Mm -hmm. So we have to define, okay, what constitutes a North American good? And, uh, for example, for cars, you know, where the parts can come from all over the place. So uh, there's got to be a way to compute the North American content, and that could be quite uh, tricky. But at the end of the day, there's got to be a number, and there's got to be a way to actually compute that so that it can be verified. So it can be uh, actually very, very costly to implement right. these uh, these sort of uh, of trade agreements, and uh, and and of course they can be uh, disruptive because uh, when, uh, uh, for example, imports uh, increase, they can displace uh, domestic production, and uh, so there could be unemployment, and 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 that's the sort of thing that a lot of uh, citizens focus on. You know, they see some of their uh, some of them lose their job, or they they know somebody that has has lost his job. And they tend to focus on this as opposed to to the bigger picture. And so, uh, what what we've observed is that when we we 
we did our first big trade agreement, the, the Canada-U.S. trade agreement in, in, the, in the 1980s, when we started negotiating that, the uh, labor movement in Canada was extremely uh, uh, skeptical about the benefits of this, this sort of endeavor. And, um, and then uh, there was uh, actually a very strong opposition, a visceral so sort of opposition, like uh, we're going to lose our sovereignty we won't be able to have our uh, domestic programs like our healthcare uh, system, for example. And of course, n none of that was true, but I guess if it's repeated often enough, uh, then people decide that it must be true. And, uh, and so that's why there was a, a fair amount of opposition. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, we had free trade with the United States uh, and people realize, well, you know, it's not so bad. It, actually, there are new jobs being created. There are some that we lost, but there are new ones being created. Um, so it's not as disruptive as uh, initially thought. And, and for a long time, it's, it seemed like uh, when we moved along and negotiated other trade agreements that um, people uh, sort of understood that it was to our benefit. Yeah, there'd be some some disruption, but but even the the, the labor unions didn't have this sort of a, a position. Like when we negotiated with the United States and Mexico NAFTA, uh, already back then, you know, people realized, well, you know, we'll have the Mexican as partner, and uh, they're not that big a threat. You know, it seems to me there there, there were always concerns, but I would kind of be interested in you reflecting. So, I mean, on the 1980s and the early 1990s, it was a real amazing suite. I mean, as you That's mentioned, right. we had the Canadian-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, uh, the World Trade Organization, Canada signs on to the World Trade Organization Agreement on Agriculture, we have NAFTA, we have the European Union, all within the span yeah. of, say, 89 to 95. That was... Yeah. There was there were challenges then, and you raised some of them. Yeah. But what what's the difference when you... Ref between then and then maybe take us to now it seems yeah. to me that well now there's uh, there, there there seem to be a um a, a switch to the old uh, fears and we we've seen that in in the United States and uh and and in Europe too of course uh uh but you know if we look at the the United States the, I, I'd say that the the big uh contributing factor is the emergence of uh, China as a uh uh, power trader. I mean, they uh, they went from a, a rather marginal uh, trading nation to, uh, to to the biggest trading nation. Um, <clears throat> and what what we found out is that uh, some manufacturing sector tend to be uh, clustered in geographical areas, and so um, when when some of these sectors um, uh, contract because of import competition. Uh, the workers and the capital have problem moving out and uh, being relocated to to other sectors of the economy. It takes it takes actually more time than what most most people, uh, most economists thought. And uh, and and so what what happened is that. There's been an increasing focus on these uh, these sort of uh, issues, uh, so that I would say uh, some politicians have been quite astute and have capitalized on that, like like Donald Trump, of course. And um, I just and want to say one thing, kind of get in here and, and get sure. your thoughts on this. Um, now, one in the United States, manu the actual amount of manufacturing goods is is higher than it's been in, in, in the past, but the labor producing those goods is much lower. Uh, do you have a sense of how much to att we attribute? Well, the actually, the, 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 the share of manufacturing in the uh, U.S. economy has, has, has shrunk. Uh, so the, the, the service sector is more important than before because uh, uh, manufacturing has moved, essentially, a, a big chunk of it has moved overseas. and, and and actually, even China now is, is fearing that it's it's going to lose some of its manufacturing might to uh, countries with uh, with cheaper labor. 
so that's that's a natural process. When 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 goods become sort of standardized, they can be produced in places where uh, labor is, is 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 very cheap. So. Uh, countries like like Canada and the United States have lost a, a, a fair amount of their uh, manufacturing base, so the importance of manufacturing in, in the economy is smaller. So even if we were trying to um, take a protectionist route and say, well, we're going to try to stop uh, some of the imports from uh, from China, uh, that honestly would not uh, do a whole lot to reestablish manufacturing. We wouldn't be able to bring back manufacturing to what it was uh, 20 years ago. So, so that would be uh, counterproductive. And we certainly wouldn't be able to in terms of employment just because of that's the, right. the technology. That's, that's right. That's right. So what, what, what we do is that we have to focus on, on what we're, we're, we're good at and, and actually ex take, take advantage of uh, the, uh, the fact that some countries have uh, of cheap labor. Uh, a good example is the uh, uh, the iPad. Uh, <clears throat> the iPad, you know, the conception was done uh, in the United States, but the parts come from all over the place, uh, uh, and and and. Some of Apple's uh, rivals are actually uh, providing some of these parts, uh, like uh, Samsung, for example, um, and uh, uh, like the hard drive uh, come from uh, the Philippines. It's it's uh, uh, made in plants owned by Toshiba, a Japanese company, um, <clears throat> and all of this is assembled in China. Uh, so the uh, uh, the value added in China amounts to four dollars, but when the United States is importing uh, uh, these goods from uh, from China, uh, every single unit add something like two hundred and eighty dollars to the U.S. trade deficit. So some people think, well, you know, isn't that bad? But then you know these units are sold in the United States for about twice as much. So who gets? The bulk of the the profit from this, of course, the American companies, the retailers, the Apple. Um, so that's that's an example where you know the, if you look at the, the the trade deficit with China, you might think, well, you know, is that isn't that such a bad thing? But but it's 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 a profit engine, and a lot a lot of the people don't uh, don't see it, and it, it's it's because there's a lot of uh, misinformation, and people focus on on, on job losses, and uh, uh, they think that uh, they're losing also their uh, their sovereignty because where the world is more integrated, the supply chains are more integrated. Um, so, do you have a sense of what triggered that new? So, uh, one of the things that I hear you saying is, there's a lot. It's very difficult to trace out these effects yeah. and the movement of trade, which was it always had these people that were knew they were going to be affected by it, and there was always a bit of um, resistance to it in the '90s. But the, there's a new uh, capitalization on it, maybe by politicians, and there's you know a lot of misinformation. Is there are there other factors contributing to the? Kickback that we're experiencing right now. Well, I would, I would think that the, the biggest one is is is, is through simply the uh, the politics. Uh, you know, the the, the rise of the uh, populist movement uh, in in the United States and uh, in Europe. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we see that uh, some of these things are, are are quite volatile because the the, the French election shows that you know the. Uh, in some parts of the world, people can can look at integration and 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 embrace it in the end. So there there are countries that have resisted that, but but even in France, there are certainly elements of uh, populism, the uh, the uh, uh, extreme right uh, party of uh, Berlin Le Pen uh, has been more uh, successful in the last presidential election than ever before. So I, I think that there's a Certainly, a window now to try to um, uh, to do things the right way. But if it's not done properly, then the, the, there'll be a, a, a stronger populist movement in France, and uh, things can de degenerate. Uh, even in France, they could at that point say, "Well, uh, 
we're French first and uh, we don't care so much about the European Union. But I, I, but I think it's, it's, it's mostly like simply the, uh, a lot of disinformation uh, and with, with the media now it's so, um, it, it, it's, it seems so much easier to do than, than before. People don't necessarily get their news on TV from respectable reporters anymore. Uh, there are uh, economists that have found that uh, it's kind of a reflex for, for people to look for news that support their value system uh, or to, when confronted to, uh, to facts that contradict their, uh, their beliefs, that they, they'll try to uh, come up with cues to uh, dismiss these facts. Mm. So, uh, public opinion is, uh, once it starts going one way, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to, um, uh, to change it and, and, and uh, you know, it will eventually change, I think, and uh, go back to where it was uh, and, and pretty much in support of, uh, of integration. Let me ask you a question, because this is kind of, we're kind of, um, mo moving on to a point that I heard you mention in your address is now it's clear I think to most listeners and, and most people out there that we've had a watershed change between the 90s and where we are right now but um, the sense uh, economists my senses generally feel the same way they're generally supportive of trade um, it, and you've talked a, bit, a little bit about that in your presentation but there are some nuances uh, that's right that's right I mean what uh, <clears throat> What the, the, the new theories show is that uh, um, trade can actually be uh, quite, quite beneficial but at the same time uh, uh, disruptive in the sense that what, 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 we, what we found looking at, at the data is that uh, this, uh, uh, firms within a sector differ widely in terms of their productivity. So you'd think you know, if they're in the same sector uh, they should pretty much have the same technology and pretty much achieve the same level of, uh, let's say, total factor productivity. But that's not the case. What we find is that uh, there um, uh, there's a wide range, and what free trade does is that it it, it tends to uh, uh, to give opportunities that are better uh, suited for the most productive firms. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, this is great for countries in the sense that, you know, if m most of the goods are produced by more productive firms, overall productivity increase, and so the uh, purchasing power of a uh, consumer uh, increases. But, you know, for this to, uh, to work well... Because their wages are tied to their productivity. Uh, that's right. That right. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, the, the, the real wage increase uh, because most of the goods are, are cheaper because they're done by more productive firms. So the country gets more productive and the people who get cheaper goods. More uh, purchasing right. power. And, uh, and, 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 and so they, they, they benefit from that. The, the downside is that it, it's, it creates disruption in the sense that the less productive firms um, are forced to exit. Mm -hmm. In a, a very fluid labor market, the, the workers that are laid off by less productive firms normally should end up being hired by more productive firms because the more productive firms then uh, not only have to meet the demand that they were facing before, but now they have larger demand because they're picking up the demands from the, the firms that were forced to exit. So they, they, they normally they should hire more workers. But again, that's the sort of thing that takes a bit of time. The re that's, that reallocation of, of resources take uh, uh, take some time, and and so that could be a bit disruptive. The other thing is that what we find is that um, the world is not perfectly competitive. Firms take markups, and in a world like that, the uh, um, when you the, say markups, just for our listeners, you mean like markups on goods, yeah, make, making the price higher. Than that's right. That's right. So that's that's a natural uh, tendency and. In a world like that, you know, that, you know, create inefficiency. So basically, in addition to countries wanting to use their trade policy to manipulate world prices to, a, to their advantage, that is trying to reduce the uh, prices they pay foreign exporters and increase the prices that their exporters get 
um, uh, uh, export markets, uh, there's also the incentive to use trade policy then to address domestic market failures, those uh, markups on, on domestic goods. And uh, so the, the, the optimal policy, uh, trade policy, then must take that into account. So the, uh, I guess the, the prescription now for, for small economies is no longer a zero tariff, but a, a small positive tariff. So, so there's a nuance there, but that's the, the sort of thing that sometimes, you know, people would, would that, that try to to sell protectionism would uh, would use and say, well, you know, this is a justification for a 200% tariff. And uh, of course, 200% tariff are inconsistent with those those uh, uh, new theories uh, that say, well, you know, that there should be a small positive tariff, but not certainly not a 200% tariff. But uh, the, uh, uh, I would say the new theoretical uh, results, the, the new knowledge and in economics is, is, is uh, sort of a, uh, being abused uh, by some, some people that have vested interest in, uh, in protection. So the, the, the economic thinking that, about integration is largely the same, that there's gains to it, but that in some cases these uh, issues about imperfect competition or... Um, yeah. And in, in terms of trade manipulation, uh, you know, it's always the case that big countries uh, that, you know, have a big share in uh, uh, world markets have, you know, their reflex of trying to use their trade policy to uh, manipulate terms of trade. What we've known for quite some time is that um, it's, uh, it, it can be counterproductive when there are too many large countries that are trying to do this sort of thing. And, and, and that's why institutions like uh, the GATT and the WTO uh, have been created. It's to, to uh, uh, basically prevent countries from uh, shooting themselves in the foot uh, by uh, counteracting uh, each other. And so by having an organization like, uh, like the WTO countries then uh, commit themselves to certain policy, it's not, <clears throat> it's not free trade. But what what <clears throat> what uh, the WTO does is that it forces countries to come up with a, a schedule of tariffs, and 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 basically what what we call bound tariffs or maximum tariffs. So uh, a Canadian exporter, for example, that is uh, exporting to uh, to Japan, like uh, Alimel, for example, that uh, sell pork meat to to Japan. It knows in advance what the worst possible tariff will be, and that's a big plus because it creates some stability. You know what the market conditions are. Japan can always lower that that tariff, and, and of course that would be to the benefit of uh, of Alimail. But at least Alimail knows you know this is like the worst case scenario, and I know that they will not, after I sign a contract with them, try to tax me more. So that's that's a that's a uh, a huge, a huge benefit, actually. I mean, that that sounds so important that the capacity to trade over increasing distances with people that you don't know requires institutions that allow you to coordinate expectations. And when we talk about free trade, undergirding quote unquote free trade are costly institutions uh, to maintain. Moving forward into this kind of homolu that we're currently in and this whole set of concerns about NAFTA, TPP, where do you see uh, Canada's place? How, what you, you know, I realize you, it's a crystal ball kind of scenario, but <coughs> what are you thinking um, is going to be well, I th unfold? Well, I think, you know, if, if, if you look at, at Canada, we, um, we have quite a bit of land, we have uh, water, so we, we certainly have a, uh, what I would call a comparative advantage in, uh, in agriculture, and we're a big uh, exporter of uh, uh, agricultural commodities. We are trying to diversify and add value added and, and process more of these commodities. But, but essentially, when I look at, <coughs> at, at Canada, we're a small nation, uh, trade is a uh, certainly a bigger part of our economy than trade is for the United States. So it's important for us to uh, to have access to uh, to our market and uh, uh, especially to have 
really good access to the US market because it, it's such a big market that it's very close. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in the short run, uh, it's important for us to, to make sure that we, we have, uh, we maintain uh, a special relationship with, with the United States. Having said that, I think it's very important, even if the U.S. doesn't want to um, uh, have trade agreements uh, with uh, more Asian countries, I think it's, it's important for, for Canada to go ahead and maybe uh, try to revive uh, the TPP. So the TPP is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that was rejected by uh, by the United States, and 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 because they had a rule about having a, a minimum, uh, 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 they basically for for the deal to go forward, there uh, the countries that signed on had to represent. Uh, I, I think it was 80% of uh, the GDP of the whole group. And by uh, pulling out, the United States essentially killed the deal for everybody else, even though there's just one country that left. And and, and right now, Canada and some of the others are, 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 are saying, well, maybe we should still go ahead. Because we invested a lot of time in, in uh, negotiating, negotiating this agreement. And... and and you know, for for Canada, the big attractiveness of the the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was the partner the, having a trade agreement with Japan, a huge nation, um, and we think that we can export quite quite a bit of agricultural goods there. Um, so that should go ahead, uh, and 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 uh, perhaps a deal with with China, perhaps a deal with India. So we we should because. Uh, most of our trade agreements have been, of course, with the United States and, and, and then uh, Central American countries um, like Chile or South American countries like Chile or, or Costa Rica. Um, <clears throat> but we sort of, um, we have a trade agreement, uh, it's fairly recent, with South Korea, but we don't have trade agreements with other Asian countries. Mm -hmm. So we have to catch up. So, uh, you know, a strategy, I think, would be to, to explore that. Make sure that we have our special relationship with the United States. That will not be simple because of the uh, President Trump. But uh, if we can protect that, then we should explore new avenues and actually make some of the, uh, our U.S. competitors uh, jealous. If we start exporting uh, meat... Uh, to Japan under better terms than the American. Uh, I'm sure that there'll be American firms that will be uh, uh, rather annoyed at their their president, and, uh, and and then they'll probably push the U.S. to be a bit more forward thinking. Let me ask you a question. It's um, something that I know that comes up a lot in economics classes, and it's related to this. For the Canadians sitting out there listening to. Um, you speak about improved relationships with Asia. What would someone responds, and this speaks to the issue of comparative advantage. But but wait a minute, everything in um, say another country, Vietnam, can be produced cheaper, so we'll lose. Um, how do how do economists think about that, or how do you teach that kind of concern or address well, that? Well, the 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 idea of comparative advantage is is to uh, allocate your resources and. Uh, when I say resources, it's uh, uh, labor, capital, water, land, in, uh, in sectors where you're relatively good at. So you can be uh, good in a, in a lot of things, but you'll be relatively better in, in a few. And that's where you should, uh, you should specialize. A good example is, uh, you know, at a very personal level, you could be, for example, the uh, um, the son of a plumber, and uh, at the same time, you can be a highly paid, very successful lawyer. So if you if you have a um, a shower to replace, and it's a uh, a job that would take a half to a full day, and uh, the local plumber is as good as you, or you're as good as he is, and uh, he charged $75 an hour. 
and as a your opportunity cost as a lawyer is three hundred dollars an hour. So what are you gonna do? You gonna call the plumber or do the job yourself? <laughs> so comparative advantage you know, would would dictate that you're relatively better at lawyering than at plumbing, and so that's 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 the sort of thing that uh, that essentially drive comparative advantage. So, so in the case of, uh, for example, uh, less developed countries, yes, their productivity is, is lower, but then so are their wages. And so there's a strong connection between productivity and, and, and wages. So they, um, here in, in Canada, and I guess in, in the United States, we, uh, uh, a lot of people tend to focus on, on wages, say, well, you know, the sort of uh, wages we have is such that we're not competitive. But then if you talk to people in less developed countries, they'll say, well, we certainly don't have the productivity mm. to, to match uh, countries in the rich world. And so if we trade with them, uh, it will be harmful trade. But the idea is that uh, there are some goods that are, some of those countries are relatively better at doing and they can gain by specializing in those goods. And there's some goods that we're really good at doing here in, in Canada and the United States and, and in, in Europe. And, uh, and ultimately, when we, we trade, we both uh, benefit. It's not a, a zero-sum game, uh, even though a lot of uh, politicians seem to have this sort of view that if you import, it's bad. If you export, it's good. Uh, when you import your you're importing goods that are that are cheaper, so that you know increase your your purchasing power and and your utility. When you're exporting, you're actually depriving yourself of, of goods. So that that technically is a is a bad thing. But the reason why you're exporting is is so that you can import some more. So you uh, so when the the whole world does that, then we have a more efficient allocation of, uh, of resources, we can increase the amount of goods uh, for the whole planet. And, and so that, that's a, that tends to be a good thing. Yes. When, when, when you see, uh, in kind of in this crystal ball, in the movement of trade to, um, to uh, new trade to uh, Asia, are there any particular goods that strike you where we have that comparative advantage relative to those new markets that we might be looking at? Well, we can certainly export uh, a lot of grains. Uh, you know, certainly, a, a strong comparative advantage in that. Uh, we can also export quite a bit of meat, uh, beef, uh, pork. Uh, we, we're actually doing quite a bit of that. Uh, what makes uh, Asia interesting is that uh, uh, these economies are, are are either already quite big, or uh, they are growing very fast, like like China, for example. The, the revenue per person is not all that high, but it's growing fast. Mm -hmm. And when when the income of people are 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 growing, then they they, they switch their consumption patterns, and, and that's what we observe in a lot of those countries. When consumers get richer, and they want to consume. Uh, more meat, they want to consume uh, a wider uh, array of vegetables and fruits, uh, they want to consume more sweet things like maple syrup, for example, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> they want more, more wine, uh, Chinese consumption of wine has increased tremendously. Uh, so, so there are all kinds of, uh, of opportunities for uh, a nation that uh, produce a lot of uh, agri-food products like, like Canada. I want to kind of move to, uh, I realize we're kind of moving towards the end of our conversation, but I want to get your thoughts on, on a couple of things and make sure we get these in uh, before we stop. And the first is, you mentioned that economists generally feel that there's, in the long run, it's not an exact science, but in the long run that the consumers and producers um, will benefit ultimately on aggregate from uh, free trade, but it's, it's a long run equilibrium. And in the short run, there are these costs. How would you suggest that we think about as we move to new markets and we know we're in a short run, you know, at various points, how do we think about how to handle that adjustment that 
concerns a lot of people. Well, there are there are policies we can put in place to uh, to try to make uh, adjustment uh, easier. I mean, we can uh, we can have programs uh, that would uh, uh, retrain displaced workers, for example. Um, we can certainly uh, try to uh, um, encourage labor mobility. If you cannot find employment in your city, uh, you know, if you have a really good safety net that doesn't force you to look for jobs beyond your city, uh, you're not likely to move where the jobs are. So uh, we we can we can try to be a bit more clever about uh, f facilitating adjustment. In some cases, that means that workers will have to uh, perhaps leave their their province. But then you know that's that's the reality. You have some time to to move where where the jobs are, and uh, and then embark on a quote unquote new uh, long run equilibrium. That's not necessarily easy. I'm not saying that for families to to to, to sell their house and, and and move to a different province where there are more jobs is uh, an easy thing to do. But ultimately, it's 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 the sort of thing that needs uh, to get done. It's certainly better than having a lot of unemployed people in one part of the country waiting for. Uh, new opportunities to arise, and if these opportunities take years and years and years, then that's uh, very costly for for the whole country. So it's uh, we need to to be a bit more proactive and en encouraging uh, labor and, and and capital mobility, and and that's the sort of um, um, of policies that have that that have to accompany uh, trade agreements. Uh, you know, liberalizing is one thing, it's a good thing, but uh, uh, we can do better because right now it's like a, a cold turkey sort of a thing and, and, and there are costs and there are uh, people that uh, are, are a bit like left to themselves to, to readjust. We have safety net in, in Canada, we have an employment insurance, we have uh, welfare programs, um, but but we can do we can do better because some of these programs, like I said, can have perverse uh, incentive. So we uh, we have to um, um, to give people the right incentive. One uh, other issue that kind of always comes up, it seems, in these trade negotiations with respect to Canada, is um, debate about various aspects of supply management. And uh, I know it's a contentious issue, but I wouldn't mind you kind of touching on how you. Think that plays out in some of these um, efforts to expand trade. Yeah, uh, you know, Canada was a, a founding member of uh, of GATT, so the, uh, that was created uh, in the 1940s, and uh, so we've we've gone through several. Uh, cycles of multilateral trade liberalization. Just, just let me, just for listeners out there, GATT is the General Agreement on Tariffs and, and Trade. And that's trade. right. And um, <clears throat> and so members of the the GATT initially, that was only twenty three uh, countries, uh, went through various cycles of trade liberalization, reducing tariffs. So after several cycles like that, we're at a point where uh, in agriculture. About fifty-seven percent of our tariff line are at zero, and uh, most of our other tariffs are very low, like less than ten percent. Then we have a few exceptions, like the supply managed commodities that are taxed often at two hundred, two hundred and forty-five percent, three hundred percent. Supply management commodities. We're talking about dairy, dairy, eggs, uh, turkey. Uh, so. You know, in terms of dairy, it's all dairy products, not just milk, uh, yogurt, ice cream, uh, and also uh, uh, milk ingredients. Uh, uh, and uh, basically, that's the, uh, the supply managed commodities. That's very much the, the, uh, the only low-hanging fruit left when Canada is negotiating with the, the European unions or, or the Americans on a new NAFTA, for example. Um, and so it's normal that these countries are trying to pressure us. So, uh, the, the Europeans were successful in getting a, uh, uh, 
a quota enlargement for their cheese exports. Uh, what we have for those commodities, supply managed commodities, is um, uh, a trade policy instrument called a tariff rate quota. A uh, tariff rate quota tax imports on a, a small quota of products or a level of imports. And then any level of imports in excess of that quota is taxed at a very, very high rate. So I can send like five gallons of milk to you for a little tax, but then if it goes at some cutoff point, it goes over six, Higher, then it's like 200% yeah. or something. That's like that. right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, tons of product, like if we, uh, if we import less than, uh, say, uh, 18,000 tons of cheese, then it's taxed at a low rate, but then anything above that is taxed at a very high rate, like, you know, some cheeses in the neighborhood of 250%. So that's what Canada currently imposes currently on... has. And, and, and for our partners, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, of course, they want a bigger share of the market. And so what they say is we would want to have, uh, to have the ability to export more cheese at a low tax rate. And so that's what the Europeans negotiated with us. So that was the first time, actually, that uh, we agreed to, to liberalize. Um, during the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, the Americans were successful in getting s additional concessions on, on dairy products, on, on chicken uh, and eggs. Uh, of course, we're not talking about big, uh, uh, big influx uh, in the cheese. Uh, uh, cheese imports make about 5% of our consumption. Uh, so we're talking about, in the end, after seven years, we would uh, have cheese imports making about 8.5% of the market. Uh, for uh, dairy products in the TPP, we're looking at increases about 3% of what we consume. So the, they were not dramatic concessions, but uh, nonetheless, in terms of... Uh, um, the history of our negotiation, uh, that was a major achievement that was done by uh, the European Union and uh, the United States. Now we're, ne we're negotiating, uh, negotiating uh, a new NAFTA and uh, we'll have to make concessions. I think we're going to have to give a little bit more so that President Trump can save face because he's been saying uh, that uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a very bad deal for the United States. And so we cannot simply say, well, take what we had agreed in the TPP and go with that. Because, you know, since he's been saying that that was a very bad deal for the U.S., we're going to have to add a few things. One strategy that we could use is to cut some of those very, very high tariffs. So even if we were to bring down some of those tariffs from, say, 250% to 100%, it wouldn't change a thing. Uh, but, but why would he go for that, then? But, why would but they... in terms of symbol, you could say, well, we, uh, we got a major concession with the Canadian. We, mm. we uh, uh, brought down tariff to 100% or maybe even uh, uh, 50%. And uh, eventually, we'll bring them down. So it's a, the a eventually, that would, yeah. uh, would sell the thing. Uh, the deal and uh, and this way I think you could save face and for us in the short run at least uh, we wouldn't have to give much market access. Well, from from my perspective it might even not be a bad thing if we gave for, for Canadians if we gave that, uh, you know more concessions because it's true there is a, a producer problem but then consumers at least there's these you know both sides the consumers would pay less for uh, that's right geez. that's right no it's it would it, it would certainly be, I think, a good thing to uh, to put a bit more pressure uh, to uh, to give incentive for these sectors to become a bit more productive, and and that's what trade policy could uh, uh, could do. If we were to replace the uh, tariff rate quota with uh, binding tariffs, um, we could set the tariff so that we would essentially give the same market access, or maybe a little bit more that the Americans currently have. Um, the advantage with this, 
uh, is that if our relative productivity slip relative to the Americans, uh, with a tariff, our imports would increase. So consumers then would, uh, Canadian consumers would benefit from the productivity gains in the United States. If we maintain our tariff rate quotas, uh, the same volume of imports would continue to be imported regardless of our uh, loss in relative productivity. And, uh, and, and so that would be a bad thing because we wouldn't be able to capitalize on the fact that the Americans have had uh, a productivity gain. If uh, Canadian uh, farmers become relatively more productive than uh, U.S. farmers, then with the tariff, there'd be less imports. It would also help us this way. If we somehow become relatively more productive, we'll import less. And again, Canadian consumers then would, would not uh, uh, pay higher prices and farmers would be, Canadian farmers would be able to, uh, to produce more and, and benefit from their uh, relative increased productivity. So a, a tariff would be uh, actually a much better instrument than a tariff rate, rate quota. Uh, but uh, there doesn't seem to be a strong appetite politically to change the uh, the policy. So, in 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 other words, your crystal ball is just m more minor or more concessions uh, following what you know was offered, perhaps a little bit more uh, within TPP. Or I, I I think unfortunately that's that's where we're uh, will most likely go. Uh, uh, in part because that's what we did with the Europeans. We've increased the uh, the quota of the tariff rate quota, so we guarantee guaranteeing them uh, uh, a larger access to our market. Um, and uh, so it's, it's managed trade. Uh, um, if we become relatively better at making cheeses, we'll still have to give them that same access. Um, <clears throat> and personally, I, I find that it's unfortunate. Uh, so again, it would be uh, it would be better if we were to replace these instruments, these instruments by tariffs. But uh, my sense is that the um, uh, uh, the industry, so the uh, dairy farmers of Canada, uh, chicken farmers of Canada, they, they prefer tariff rate quotas and giving uh, slightly larger uh, quota to uh, to foreigners than than to switch instrument to to a tariff. And, and it, it looks like they're the one deciding, deciding what our trade policy should be, as opposed to the government deciding. That. Why do you say that? I mean, what what makes well, you feel they, 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 they carry a lot of clout, but in terms of, it seems to me that the economics are relatively simple in this case. That uh, um, <clears throat> you know, it would be better simply to use uh, a tariff, and uh, a tariff is, uh, would give us more uh, flexibility, and like I said before, protect us against. A, uh, a slip in relative productivity. Uh, it would pr protect the Canadian consumers. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, uh, the politics of, of this uh, negotiation is, uh, is such that uh, you know, the, the industry lobby is extremely powerful. And uh, in the past, actually, they, they had been successful in shielding completely uh, these industries from any sort of uh, uh, trade liberalization. So personally, I was uh, I was impressed that the Europeans had managed to get at least some concessions. Uh, it seems as this is one of the great challenges, like the political economy challenges to uh, taking advantage of the gains of trade are just kind of in all countries to a certain extent. I think about uh, the concerns raised by the softwood lumber companies in the United States, those are a real challenge. Those are in some way similarly situated groups that are aggressively pursuing their own self-interest and sometimes at the, the detriment, the detriment of, the, of, the, of their consumers. The, the, yeah. Of course, in, in the United States, uh, most states actually would, would benefit from uh, free trade in softwood lumber. Uh, and actually the large hardware store uh, in the United States have uh, sided with Canada and, uh, on, on, on this issue. Uh, but again, 
you know, you have uh, sometimes small but extremely well organized lobbies that are very, very powerful that uh, can carry the day. And uh, in the case of the uh, U.S. Softwood uh, lumber dispute with 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 Canada, that's that has been the case. And in Canada, it's the other way around. It's our uh, uh, supply manage uh, sectors that have been extremely powerful in uh, uh, influencing politicians and in order to be uh, successful in influencing uh, politicians they have to be successful in courting public opinion and uh, uh, otherwise it wouldn't work and, uh, and, and you know we have uh, examples uh, week after week of uh, information sent to newspapers or uh, uh, magazines about the, the virtues of the, the supply management system and, and so if you repeat the same message often enough there are a lot of people will start believing it and, uh, uh, and again I'd say a lot of the people have uh, Canadian people have a lot of uh, empathy toward farmers and uh, uh, if it were if we were talking about a big corporation uh, getting protected and increasing prices that consumer pay uh, uh, I don't think that would be the same sort of support but uh, uh, again it's a very well organized uh, lobby uh, with uh, very very proficient at uh, spreading their message so I just want to end going back to, to your title, uh, Economic Integration Reconsidered. We talked a little bit about its history, we've talked a little bit about the challenges of certain sectors, we've talked about the idea that there are gains in the long run but there are pains in the short run. Um, if you are leaving your listeners with where you're at, you've had a really uh, a long career, I'll just congratulate you again for becoming a fellow uh, this at these Canadian Agriculture Economic Society meetings where we are right now in Montreal. Thank you. <laughs> where where are you uh, on uh, your sense of? I know it's a tough question. You can take a moment. There's no problem. But uh, where would you? How would you, if you could? How would you sum it up? Well, I I I I'd say we, we you know, um, public thinking, public opinion. I think uh, uh, changes over time, and uh, in in many ways. Um, we tend to forget uh, history pretty quickly, uh, so we uh, we fall into the same sort of traps than uh, than before. I think right now we're kind of a, uh, at the bottom of a wave, but uh, I think that eventually we'll go back up, and uh, uh, logic or more logic will will prevail. Um, <clears throat> So I, I think that ultimately we'll be able to uh, to preserve our relation, special relationship with the United States, which is so c crucial for the, 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 the Canadian economy. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, we'll be proactive in negotiating uh, trade agreements with, with Asian countries, uh, Japan, China, India. Um, and as far as uh, uh, supply management, well, uh, these people have been, extreme, like I said, very good communicators and, you know, swing public opinion to their side. Um, uh, they've been also extremely good at uh, preventing rebellion within their ranks. Uh, and, and, and that's the big difference, for example, uh, in relation to what we saw with... Uh, uh, the Canadian Wheat Board, where uh, you had uh, some farmers that were uh, very much for it, but then some farmers that were very much against it. And uh, they, uh, the, 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 the pro-Wheat Board were not able to convince the uh, anti-Wheat Board that there were some, some benefits from, from that, that institution. With, with supply management, uh, the, uh, uh, the industry has been very, very good at um, uh, sharing the rents from the whole system because you know the idea is uh, we're getting more money from consumers and then we're redistributing it so that everybody's happy everybody's taking a margin and that makes for a very inefficient industrial structure because it's like a, a cascade of little monopolies and uh, 
and so the, the, the market then shrinks quite a bit as, as, as a result. Um, but uh, that's what has made the system so, uh, so efficient because everybody's taking a cut. And uh, they've been efficient at splitting these things so that there wouldn't be too much uh, dissatisfaction within, within their ranks. You know, from time to time you'll hear some processors being annoyed at something, but then, you know, they, they find ways to, uh, to appease them. Or, uh, um, and, and it's not only the processors, it's also the, the input suppliers, the, uh, the lending institutions. One one of the first time I criticized the system in the OPED, the uh, uh, the first letter in response to to my letter was from the, the president of the Desjardins uh, uh, Credit Union movement, so the president himself. So it was not like the ag person; it was the president, and uh, basically saying, you know, supply management is a great system. It uh, uh, makes the uh, uh, revenues, uh, the incomes for farmers stable and high enough so that they can live well. And of course the lending institutions benefit from that because nobody goes bankrupt. So. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. It was a real pleasure to have you on Fair Talk. Well, that was fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.